welcome to the Cloud Pod, where the forecast is always cloudy. We talk weekly about all things AWS, Google, and Azure. We are your hosts, Justin, Jonathan, and Peter. Episode 23, recorded on May 13th. Unlock the podcast with your Android device. Good evening, good evening. It's another wonderful night here on the Cloud Pod, and we have a bunch of stuff to get into, but how are you guys doing? Great, Justin. How are you? Uh, you know, it's been a little bit of an interesting week for me, but uh, it's ended on a good note, and so that's the best that we can look at, look for. Cool. Awesome. I'm just looking to hang on till the weekend. <laughs> Indeed. All right. Well, let's get into it then. Uh, Amazon S3 uh, has apparently been doing some deprecations of APIs, particularly the path style API uh, requests uh, starting in September 30th, 2020 will be disabled for new buckets. Uh, This was a course correction that occurred uh, after they first announced it on the forums around the 30th of April and the internet lost their minds (laughs) about uh, the fact that they were going to disable this path style known as version one in the S3 buckets. Um, And so it basically gave you guys some context. Uh, Basically, the bucket names on the very one were s3.amazon.aws.com slash bucket name and then a key. Uh, And then as part of V2, they changed it to uh, bucket name.s3.amazon.aws.com slash the key, which would be the object. Um, And so that was the original way you did it back when I started with AWS many, many moons ago. Uh, And now the, you know, but V2 has been pretty much the predominant way. Most people have been doing it for a while. The SDK has been doing it that way for a long time. And so Amazon has, was trying to basically deprecate this functionality um, back on the forum post on the 30th, uh, which then caused some uproar in the community. What do you guys think about the first part of the announcement? I was disappointed, actually. I, I really wish um, they um, they wouldn't br- make breaking changes like this, especially for probably what's one of their largest services. One of the biggest complaints I heard about this was all around censorship, which which kind of surprised me. But apparently, um, if you start putting the if, if you only have the bucket name in the host name, it becomes easier to to censor content from particular buckets, and you know, using uh. using layer seven filtering. I mean, any any decent layer seven filtering would let you filter down to the the path level anyway. But yeah, one one of the biggest complaints I heard about was was uh, the ease of censorship that this that this change would bring. So that that obviously hasn't gone away since they walked back the change, um, at least not for new buckets. But it's um, I guess it's all around how they scale uh, in the future with the service. So it's. It's nice, and it's nice that there's going to be one way and only one way to to reach the buckets because with US East one being the, the special uh, snowflake that it was for the longest time, it, it didn't match the same pattern as any of the other new regions. So I, I, standardization is good, I guess, but um, a, a, announcing a breaking change and then walking it back was that's kind of crappy. Yeah, I think uh, it's it's a reminder that uh, our if we're going to be managing infrastructure, if our infrastructure is basically API calls, um, that now we have to manage that code that we write when we're writing code to uh, provision and manage our infrastructure. So all that stuff is great. Automation is great, but then someone's got to maintain that code. This one's especially uh, a good one because it's not just ops code. This is tons of application code that's been written. Um, to access S3 buckets. So I could imagine for some people, this is like their Y2K, except on a much more compressed timeline uh, to go through and, and change all of your application code. Yeah, it's it's interesting because I think I can see how they were like, look, we're 
you know, we've been supporting V2 forever as the default kind of method that we use in the console and the SDK. It's been there for several years. You know, this was really an artifact of a, a very legacy time in buckets uh, in the S3 service. And so, you know, we're going to get this announcement. We're going to give you, you know, a little bit over a year uh, to fix this problem. And I'm sure, you know, there's some developers who are just like, this isn't a big deal. And, you know, we'll just make this announcement and it'll deprecate in a year. Um, I don't think they quite expected the backlash that kind of came out of it. Um, and, you know, and Jeff Barr basically admitted in his blog post that they they announced it way too quietly. Uh, it shouldn't have been posted on the forum first. It should have been announced through the blogs and through the different communication channels. And it was interesting. Um, I don't know, Peter, you might remember this because you guys were a partner back then. But um, when I was at my partner back several years ago, when they changed the instance ID length, you know, they scheduled an emergency call with us to tell us they were going to announce this change and that, you know, if you're doing work on automation in your asset management database or whatever to pull the instance size that it was going to go from eight characters to, I don't remember what the number of characters is now, but, you know, it was a, it was a pretty big deal. And they made a big deal of notifying the partners, notifying the customers what was going to happen, email communication, et cetera, where this was just kind of like a little whimper in the forum. Yeah, I definitely remember that being uh, much more uh, loudly addressed and urgently addressed. Um, yeah, it was surprising. But I mean, I think that it's going to be our, uh, you know, we should expect, they should announce, they should be, they should announce these things more clearly, but we need to uh, be ready to expect to hear it and be ready to manage our code to handle it. I mean, it's it's great for people who are currently actively developing a product still, and we, they, great they can they can pivot from V1 to V2, and it may not be a big deal. But there's going to be a bunch of services out there which are no longer maintained, which people have probably paid money for. They're using, they've deployed, they may not have access to the code to make changes to things like this. And although they're given us a year and a half worth of notice, um, if if the companies aren't around anymore to support the, the, those older products, then uh, Amazon making a change like this will effectively render those other things useless. So I think, um, I mean, I'd really prefer them to, to not break APIs and just introduce new ones. I didn't really see any upside for me either. I mean, great, so they're deprecating the, the old V1 style. Where's my upside? You know, is it going to work faster? Is it going to scale better? Where's What's in it for me? You know, you're making me do the, go back and do this work. Uh, why? <laughs> I think I think it's it's around the fact that there's there's limitations to what features they can add moving forward that will work with the V1 style path. So, in uh, and I think that's why their walk back was basically that they're gonna leave they're gonna leave it for existing buckets um, and not allow V1 for new buckets. Uh, I can imagine a. Uh, a scenario where they're going to start releasing features that are not supported on v1 at all and jeff actually says that in the blog post so he talks about uh, there was two two big reasons that they were moving to the virtual host references uh, and I'll quote this from the blog post because I don't have it summarized. But first, anticipating a world with billions of buckets homed in many dozens of regions, routing all incoming requests directly to a small set of endpoints makes less and less sense over time. DNS resolution, scaling, security, traffic management, including DDoS protection, are more challenging with a centralized model. The virtual host model reduces the area of impact, which we call the blast radius internally, when problems arise. This helps us increase availability and performance. The second reason, the team has a lot of powerful features in the works, many of which depend on the use of unique virtual hosted style subdomains. Moving to this model will allow you to benefit from these new features as soon as they are announced. For example, we are planning to deprecate some of the oldest security ciphers and versions. Uh, details on this to come later. The deprecation process is easier and smoother for you and for us if you're using a virtual based host. Uh, number three, I guess, which you didn't really mention is browsers are all very 
um, host name centric when it comes to things like cookies. And right now with V1, everyone, well, within a region, everyone shares the same host name uh... for the endpoint. So uh, there's a potential security concern around that. So moving to V2 is, is advisable either way. Yeah. So, I mean, I definitely he kind of alluded to that with powerful features in the works. And I, I agree with you. That's, that's a good third reason as well. There are other things that have been announced in the forums that are being deprecated or have some type of impact. Uh, things like the SafeNet Luna is uh, going out of maintenance in April 2020, uh, things like that. Uh, Summit Route has done a great job putting this together in a, in a GitHub repo called AWS underscore breaking underscore changes. Uh, and so they basically are now tracking when these things get announced in the forum. When it was announced, the day is going to take effect, which service it's impacting, and then what the change will be, and how you can check to see if you're going to be impacted. They're trying to get this maintained and, and up to date, uh, which you know Amazon really should be doing for them. But you know at least someone has taken the time to put this together, um, so you can track this, and they have a RSS feed for it, and all the different ways to get notified of things getting changed in this repo. So, if you are worried about this, or you have things that you've been using for a long time, this is not a bad uh, site to go to. So we'll have this in the show notes. You can link to it right from there. Uh, Azure App Service has updated their free Linux tier. Python and Java support has been increased and more. Uh, the Azure App Service, which uh, has released these enhancements, will now allow you to build, deploy, and run using a perpetually free tier of app services on Linux. It supports Python 3.7, 3.6, and 2.7. Uh, and Java 11 is now also available for Windows and Linux uh, runtime. Uh, this new intrinsic build system on Linux handles resolving and installing Node.js for you and all the Python dependencies, all with a simple build script. So this is a nice improvement if you're using the Azure App Service uh, to run your application workloads now supporting Linux uh, in a free tier as well as just Linux in general. So I guess that they, they know who they need to attract Linux users. I think that's that's been Azure's go-to for a while is that Linux has to be one of their use cases on their platform. Otherwise, people won't use it. So we were chatting earlier before the show. Is, is App Service more like Heroku or Beanstalk? Beanstalk and Heroku are very similar to each other. So they're, it's, I would say it's in the same family of products. kind of wonder why, why it's a thing. Why not just use Docker? Yeah, well, that's the alternative. Yeah. A lot of people want that very simple Beanstalk experience that, you know, just I want to write my code, I want to push it in my IDE, and I want to walk away and have it just work. All right, Amazon has uh, announced a new generation of IO-optimized EC2 instances. Uh, This is an update to the original i3s, uh, which were launched two years ago. Uh, Typically, customers are using these for hosting distributed file systems, relational and NoSQL databases, in-memory cache, key value store, etc., uh, customers apparently wanted lower price per terabytes of storage, increased storage density to allow for consolidation of workloads and scale-up processing, and a higher ratio of network bandwidth and instant storage to the vCPUs. So the new i3EN instances will provide all of that to you. Uh, in comparing it to the old i3, the cost per gigabyte of SSD instant storage on the, on the instance is 50% lower. The storage density is 2.6% times greater, and ratio of network bandwidth is significantly improved as well at 2.7 times better. It also now supports the new Elastic Fabric Adapter, uh, and you can now use these in US East 1, West 2, East 1 in Europe, and on-demand in spot form. Reserve and dedicated hosts are coming very, very soon. Uh, if you want to know pricing for this one, I know Peter always asked me, uh, the i3 large uh, would have cost you $113 per month. The i3 EN large is $164.98. So it's a little bit more expensive, but you get that better uh, cost to gigabyte density and ratios. Yeah, that's huge. This is uh, We've done a ton of like uh, data center to AWS 
cost analyses for customers. And oftentimes this is the, these are the types of workloads that these instances support that become sort of uh, bank breakers when you're doing a lift and shift and you're not uh, transforming. So I, I, th I think this is going to be pretty big for people running big Cassandra clusters and other things that they got to, they got to bring with them. Is that one of the things that was interesting? Uh, I sort of chuckled when I read through the blog post on this. Uh, Jeff Barr said, the crucial element here is that our customers were able to express their needs in a detailed and specific manner. Simply asking for something to be better, faster, and cheaper does not help us to make a well-informed decision. <laughs> I was like, is that, is that really, are you blaming me for bad PFRs? Is that what's happening in this one? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I kind of, I, I do kind of like the model where you just get to pick exactly what you want instead of having them bundle these these pre uh, pre sized instances. I wish you could just say, I really do just want this many CPUs, this many, uh, this much RAM. I mean, it, I mean, for for dedicated hosts and and access to bare metal, it, that's that's a bit more complex, obviously. But for for VMs, I wish they'd move into the uh, just a la carte type style. Well, they can support you with that, uh, with the dedicated hosts, right? So you get the dedicated host, and you can carve it up any way you want to into VMs. I mean, not that I'd recommend you do this, but you could. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty pricey. It, it is pretty pricey. Hey, everyone. Jonathan here. I just wanted to take a minute to thank the cloud consulting gurus at Foghorn for helping make the cloud pod possible. These folks truly get it. Cloud consulting experts since 2008. They are premier tier partners with AWS, Google Cloud Platform Silver, and Microsoft Azure partners. From multi-cloud to containers to moving full production workloads to the cloud under the tightest compliance, Foghorn's team of full-stack cloud engineers have been there, done that, gotten the t-shirt, and are ready to share their experience with you. If you're in the market for some talent to supplement your team, visit www.fogops.io slash the cloud pod. www.fogops.io slash the cloud pod. Foghorn, the promise of cloud delivered. Azure SQL Data Warehouse has uh, released new capabilities for performance and security. Uh, these are several new features uh, all around the SQL Data Warehouse. Uh, they say Mar Azure says they are the market leader in price performance, flexibility, and security. The new features uh, currently in preview are a new results at caching capability, materialized views, and ordered clustered column store indexes for those doing column-sized workloads. Uh, workload importance feature uh, that enables users to decide how to work those with conflicting needs get prioritized, which we talked about on the show previously, and a new automated statistics maintenance uh, or auto-update statistics uh, feature to now keep your SQL data warehouse uh, faster and more maintained from your statistics. Uh, the new dynamic data masking is now all available to you in the advanced security module, and this allows you to mask your PI data on the fly in your data warehouse. So nice improvements to their data warehouse capabilities. Yeah, dynamic masking is great, and that's that's right in the um, the realm of uh, what they need for for HIPAA compliance. Yeah, that's that's one of the biggest pain points because nobody uh, when when you have to own that process, you can't just turn it on. It's a, a scary thing for organizations to allow. You know, so now between between Google, uh, where they talked a lot about their dynamic data masking and PII features and Azure, um, this is an area that Amazon's uh, lacking a little bit, I think. Yeah, I don't think they have a feature in Redshift, do they? I don't think they do. And I don't, they really have a lot of DLP capabilities built into the AWS platform in general. They kind of rely on their partner network for that today. Uh, maybe, maybe an area for investment at Reinforce this year. I'm not sure that data masking should be implemented at the database level uh, rather than in the application. I mean, who better knows what, what the users are, uh, and the user roles are supposed to be than the application itself? 
Well, it's like in the case of Google, right? They they weren't implementing. I mean, they have APIs you could leverage, of course, to do it. But they, you know, that did get pushed to the application side. But the thing that Google had that I thought was cool was they had a bunch of reporting features that would basically scan your data warehouse or your database or whatever and identify, you know, pretty well known patterns and provide scores to you and reports of where that data is. And so if it wasn't supposed to be there, it then gave you the capability to then go and mask it with their platform if you needed to, but while you want to fix your application, which was nice. Uh, so Google Cloud I.O. was a few weeks ago, and they did uh, have a very nice little wrap-up post about what was announced around Google Cloud at I.O., and so I thought we'd summarize that real quickly here. Uh, so the uh, we talked about uh, Android phone had built-in security key, uh, went to preview at Google Next. It is now generally available, so you can use your Android phone to unlock your access to the Google Cloud. Uh, the cloud TPU version 2 and version 3 pods are now publicly available. They were in beta. Uh, the cloud TPU pods accelerate the larger scale machine learning capabilities of the Google Cloud. Uh, they updated the Google Maps platform to now support WebGL-powered data visualization uh, using the open source deck.gl library. Uh, and a public beta has now been opened for maps uh, for Android apps. So that's a pretty nice improvement. And then the Firebase database product was updated to expand machine learning capabilities, provide enhanced web performance monitoring, and a new analytics capability. So there was quite a few things that missed next that made it to Google Cloud uh, at I.O. So definitely, if you're waiting for those on beta, uh, they're now publicly available to you or GA'd. Yeah, they just keep keep going. I mean, all of the uh, all the ML stuff, that they're pushing out uh, is it's going to be interesting to see how uh, if they can if they can really just be number one in ML instead of trying to get every feature Amazon has. I think their their play is be number one in ML and be number one in Kubernetes and that'll get market share. Yep. So it's not, not good good for them. I I don't know how I feel with this Android phone built-in security key for unlocking your access to Google Cloud. I don't know how I feel about that. Because I don't know if that's a security risk if my phone gets stolen and now I can log into the Google Cloud. I don't know. Put it is. Can I get that on my Huawei? <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know. <laughs> if you believe if you believe Trump, the entirety of China can get that on their Huawei. <laughs> <laughs> All right, no politics, Jonathan. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Steve Singh, the CEO of Docker, is stepping down. Uh, he's been at Docker now for two years. Uh, he will be replaced by the Hortonworks, uh, or former Hortonworks CEO, Rob Bearden, who helped get that company acquired by uh, you know, their biggest competitor and has stepped down. Uh, Singh will stay on for a few months to transition to Bearden, uh, but he will remain as chairman on the board. And apparently he's been working with Bearden for the last couple of months uh, as a candidate to finally join the board and decided that, nope, he'd be better CEO and I'm going to step down. So very interesting. Kind of cast, makes me cast some doubt on whether or not Docker's going to be bought by uh, VMware in this case. Figured he would, if that was in the works, then he would have stayed on for, for the remainder of that process. That's maybe true, but uh, it did say in the article that you know he apparently has been rep- he's pretty tired of being working seventy five hours a week uh, and has wanted to leave the company in capable hands. He did sign a ninety two million dollar investment this year into Docker. Uh, and to you know, all focus on getting their enterprise product to be better adopted by their customers. Uh, but you know, on the other side of this VMware rumor, uh, Bearden, uh, before CEO of or CEO of Hortonworks, was the CEO at SpringSource, uh, which was a developer tool suite that was picked up by VMware for 420 million in 2009, and then was spun out to Pivotal afterwards. Um, so he's been uh, in a company that was purchased previously by VMware, so he may have some relationships at VMware to help uh, okay. sell Docker that way if that's what they're going to do. Yeah. But it, it is really interesting to me how much Docker has uh, 
just lost mindshare, lost you know interest in the, in the enterprise space. It's really just become everything Kubernetes, uh, and it's really kind of a shame in some ways because Docker was really what started the whole thing, and and they're kind of on the sidelines. But you know they had some pretty hostile approaches to business too that I think hurt them. Yeah, not making any money yet either, are they? Well, yeah, <laughs> you got to be able to make money. Yeah, well, I mean, if no one's going to buy your enterprise product, how do you make money as Docker? It's it's an interesting question. And then, you know, the people are moving off of Docker Hub. They're moving to platform-native solutions. There's, you know, just a lot of missed opportunities by Docker, unfortunately. But uh, Or you can just keep raising money forever. Or yeah. you could do that. But eventually, your investors do want their money back. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. Maybe IBM will buy them. Oh. Add it to their Red Hat acquisition. Mm-hmm. Uh, AWS Secrets Manager now supports client-side caching libraries to improve secrets availability and reduce your cost. Uh, so this is a new client-side caching library in Python, .NET, and Go. Uh, and this is in addition to some libraries I already had in Java and JDBC. Uh, client-side caching can help improve availability of using secrets by reducing the impact of network availability issues, uh, such as increased response times or temporary loss of network connectivity. This also reduces the number of API calls you're making to the API, and this will reduce result in less costs for using secrets manager management. I always laugh at when they use oh, reducing the impact of network availability. I mean, this is we're talking about cloud services, which which all the customers are using remotely anyway. So if you have a network availability issues, then you have bigger app issues than just getting to Secrets Manager. But it's a great, it's a great that they finally put client-side caching in the um, in the library instead of asking people to reinvent it every single time they, they want to use Secrets Manager. I mean, well, technically, is Secrets Manager available to you outside of, outside of AWS through Direct Connect only, right? It's not a public endpoint. I, maybe it is. But uh, it's interesting to me on that because you... You know, you're basically the network availability you're really worried about is Amazon's network availability. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and right. so you're not, you know, if if that's the problem, you have, like you said, Jonathan, you have bigger problems in general. But it's sort of like we're giving you mitigations against ourselves in case we screw ourselves up. That's what they're doing here. Microsoft, you know, has been pretty all in on the cloud, but uh, a recent study by Gartner and Crystallize has resulted in that they are lagging the competition in Azure reliability. Uh, AWS has a 99.9987% uptime in the last uh, year. Uh, Google has 99.9982, and Azure has only 99.9792. So that's a uh, bit of a miss. But they are doing a bunch of investments to try to helpfully fix this. Mark Rasinovich, uh, who's the CTO of Azure, uh, has says, we've invested a ton in capabilities that allow us to do maintenance with little to zero impact on customers. When you do thousands of these things and everything goes off fine, you're like, the process works, he said. But obviously something like an outage shows that there's a gap, and then we're always trying to close that gap out. Uh, so apparently they're going to be using uh, machine learning in a project called Project Tardigrade uh, to basically do predictive analytics of their hosts to basically pause the VM in memory and let the OS reboot underneath it and then re-instantiate the VM. And so this will be an impact of only a few seconds, so the workloads can be moved um, and not impact you as much. So they are trying to improve this. Uh, and he said, we want our service to be like the Tardigrade, Rastavich said. Today, if the host perform- platform goes down, VMs die and need to be rebooted. Tardigrade freezes the VMs in RAM, their states are preserved, and the OS reboots underneath them. That's neat. And I, it's much less of an overhead than, than um, VMware vMotioning off to another host entirely, especially with such huge VMs floating around nowadays. Yeah, especially if they've got a lot of, uh, they're using ephemeral storage. Yeah. It is pretty. It is pretty cool looking at those numbers. Though that's like, AWS and Google are almost exactly five nines, and Azure is almost exactly four nines. 
I think there's some people who question those statistics. I mean, how, what exactly are you measuring when you're measuring AWS when they have 170 odd services? Is it the aggregate across all of their services? They probably did talk about the methodology, but I wasn't going to pay Gartner to buy it. Right. Um, <laughs> uh, but, you know, it, it, I'm sure they have a, whatever the way they're doing it is the same for all three providers. So even if it was just easy to instance availability in a single region or in you know, multiple regions aggregated together, they're still showing that, you know, comparison them apples to apples, much as they probably get to, it is slightly less in Azure. Yeah. I'm surprised it's all not right. more or less, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I was surprised. I was surprised that they're missing a whole nine. Really, like, yeah. You know, it's that was interesting to me. I thought they'd be closer together in general. That's but. ten times more downtime. Yep. And uh, you know, based on the first three months of this year, that's, that does feel that way. <laughs> We've talked about Azure how many times <laughs> having outages. <laughs> it is funny though, man. When when you get to that level, four and five nines, it's like one outage just demolishes your numbers. It does. It yeah. does. If if I was Azure, I'd be saying, well. This is why we tell you to deploy multiple regions and 99.99 across three regions can still give you the availability you need to run yep. a successful you know, It's interesting, though, because they're, they're actually not telling you to do that. Very few of Azure's regions have more than one or two availability zones. And then they are offering you these premium versions of these services to get you better uptime. Like It's been in the announcements we talked about on the show here that... Mm-hmm. You know, premium gets you faster uptime, faster resolution, faster issues. So... I, I mean, that's that's Amazon's story. That's Google's story. Like, use multiple availability zones. It doesn't necessarily follow through uh, as much in the Azure world. And that's kind of a Windows versus Linux mentality in some ways. Yeah. Pets versus uh, cattle. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Exactly. Well, that's it for the new news. Uh, let's move on to the lightning round. Azure has improved their portal with improvements to search, change tracking, uh, and faster and more intuitive resource browsing. Uh, the biggest the biggest advantage we have now for Azure is that now we can use the Chromium browser to browse them instead of the crappy old Edge browser. <laughs> Ding. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Azure Integration Services has simplified adoption of serverless with Azure Functions, including new SAP connectors, logic apps, and API management. How hard is it to add in the SAP SDK to a bit of code I upload to Functions? I mean, is this sort of supposed to be like a layers competitor or some way to try to simplify functions load? It's a little weird. I think it's kind of like the, the Lambda drag and drop console where you kind of you, you link an event trigger to, to the function. It's basically just a way of uh, programming the event response. Azure now introduces Health to Azure Deployment Manager to detect problems with your deployment and automate rollback processes. Welcome to MVP stage of a deployment system. <laughs> Dang Amazon and its partners can now resell VMware on AWS. Uh, so can you give me a deal on that, uh, Peter? You know, I'm, I'm sure I could find a way to add value somehow by reselling VMware on AWS to you. Fantastic. Years. Fantastic. <laughs> AWS Ops works for Chef Automate now supports Chef Automate 2. By the way, if anyone noticed, I think it was like exactly one year to the date that Chef Automate 2 was released. Well done. Well done. AWS Storage Gateway enhances access controls for SMB shares to store and access objects in S3 buckets. Those Windows Workgroups hosts will be so happy now. (laughs) Yeah. It's not a file system. That's all I have to say. S3 (laughs) is not a file system. (laughs) Unless you're using Storage Gateway, and then it is. (laughs) It's not. (laughs) Promise you. (laughs) 
What about Fuse? Can I use Fuse for this? <laughs> Probably. AWS Systems Manager Patch Manager supports Microsoft application patching. So the Windows patching it did before didn't support Microsoft. This is a little weird. <laughs> oh no, it, it didn't do it didn't do apps before. Now it also does apps. I mean, how many apps from Microsoft are you running on your servers in production? I mean, if you're running Office there, I guess I'm sorry for you. <laughs> <laughs> I have seen that done. I have too. <laughs> Reservation expiration alerts now available in AWS Cost Explorer. Okay, they're going to let you know that you're, you need to spend another several hundred thousand dollars on three-year upfront RIs. Perfect. We have successfully automated the AWS account executive. <laughs> and your and your tan yeah amazon cognito launches enhanced user password reset api for administrators this allows an incognito admin to reset temporary or permanent passwords for their end users this is cool um, people have been asking for this for a long time because sometimes end users get into this into this state where they just can't fix things for themselves and you end up deleting their user accounts and recreating them so it's a bad time kind of wonder why this didn't exist before yeah, it was, this is a weird one to me, too. I was like, I didn't know you couldn't do this, but <laughs> I can imagine this is a use case that they were asked for from day one. Okay. You can now share encrypted AMIs across accounts to launch instances in a single step. This is a nice feature because uh, the encryption story for root volume AMI stuff was really bad. And so I'm glad they've been really trying to fix these use cases of... You know, I, I have an instance, I want to be able to launch it and then encrypt it when I launch it. Or, or if I have an encrypted one when I start, I want to be able to keep it encrypted without relaunching keys. Like there, there's a lot of nice improvements in this whole story and workflow. I, I imagine this is all very much tied to the Jedi contract in some ways, but uh, super happy. Yeah, about yeah I'm exactly. not sure who's, who's, who's keeping data on, on um, AMIs, which needs to be kept encrypted at rest. Like maybe for machine learning workloads or something, some base data set that you need to, you know, train your model. Maybe you have that encrypted on the AMI, but you only launch the AMIs when you do the SageMaker job. So stuff like that. Or if you've uh, stolen Google's Pi calculation, maybe you need to encrypt it. Maybe you're concerned. <laughs> no, but the other reason is people like they'll have apps that run uh, that copy uh, and use the root the root volume for temporary files, and uh, and so they need it even if there's nothing on. Uh, on the AMI, <laughs> on the AMI, uh, you, uh, it's nice to know that you're spinning those things up um, with encrypted volumes. I mean, yeah, I guess so. I, I remember writing some horrendous automation around this for CentOS, where, whereby it spun up an unencrypted um, um, root volume, and then at, at the first boot time, it actually did like a live migration of these LVM uh, volumes to an encrypted set of LVM volumes. It was just a complete nightmare. So yep. I'm I'm so glad that, that these that they've sort of opened up the options around encrypted non encrypted deployments. Oracle has launched a new Tokyo region. I mean, from a global warming perspective, I'm a little bit concerned about all these data centers that are being spun up around the world by Oracle that aren't being used. It seems like a lot of energy waste. Yeah, maybe it's a uh, maybe it's a tiny little closet with one one U server in it. You assume that it's at least running Oracle Rack, so it has to at least be four. Yeah, good point, good point. <laughs> Oracle has released global replication for cloud Bigtable as GA. Uh, this, is, this is a great option for Bigtables and being able to do global enables a lot of use cases. So this is a great one. I'm glad to see this one got GA'd finally. It's been in beta forever. What's sad, you know, what's sad is that they, they waited for some big customers to, to, to push them on it before they actually did something about it. But I guess customer-driven development is... Is the way you make money, so. 
Yeah, well, it also makes sure you don't waste your time building a bunch of stuff that nobody wants when you could have been building stuff that people wanted. Yeah, but if you build it, they will come. Yeah. That's what they said in the movie. <laughs> that is what they said. That's how I feel about Tokyo region for Oracle. Yeah. If you build it, they won't ever come. Yeah, how did that work out for uh, VMware's AirCloud? Cloud Air? What? VCloud. VCloud, yes. V Cloud. V Cloud Air. Yeah, v Cloud Air, yes. <laughs> yeah, it didn't work out they so well. They built it, though. It's just they didn't come. Amazon EKS adds support for public IP addresses within cluster VPCs. I, I didn't realize this was a thing you couldn't do, I guess. I mean, it would make sense to me that you would maybe want to have public IPs in certain pods on your Kubernetes cluster, you know, especially if it's like running Nginx proxy because you're doing your own proxying layer or you're using Envoy or doing any other type of more advanced mesh networking. It, it makes sense that this would have been there. So <laughs> this one was a bit of a surprise to me that this wasn't supported. I just figured you'd launched the, the node in a public IP space. It would work. Well, I never tried it, though. I think they just assumed that you were going to use API Gateway and load balancing on the front end of this and you wouldn't need public IPs in the VPC and of course people don't want to pay for stuff that they um, either doesn't perform as well as they expect or that they don't need. Or you know you want to use mesh networking and Envoy and all those things and yeah. you just want that capability so yeah. It, it, it feels hilarious though that I want a managed service but I want it in my private VPC Yeah. but I want to make it public. <laughs> Could have just used a public endpoint. Um, all right, you can now create fine-grained session permissions using AWS Identity and Access Management managed policies. Uh, I, I fundamentally disagree with anybody who uses this as a way to improve their security posture because since when did voluntarily reducing your permissions you know, help you? Is the hacker going to come along and say, oh, actually, I don't need root access? I, no, of course they're not. So if you do an assume role and don't pass a policy, it doesn't, it, nothing changes. So I... I'd like to know what drove this, really. Yeah, that's my question too. What what was the use case for this that they they felt was necessary? Yeah, I mean, I guess you you have a service role for, um, uh, like a Jenkins or a Terraform deployment user, and they have access to deploy all the services. I mean, the orchestration around narrowing down the policy at, at execution time so that you only get permissions to the things you actually need, it's it just blows the mind that anybody actually would request something like this. Well, there you have it. Someone did. You can now monitor emails in your workmail organization using CloudWatch metrics and logs. Wow, that's that's unfortunate for whoever chose workmail at their organization. Where they're like, it's going to increase productivity, and now I can prove it doesn't. It seems like all this stuff was included in um, SES monitoring anyway. You know, incoming and incoming and outbound failures and you know bounce rates and things like that. It's kind of strange. I have a side project that uses workmail, and it's fine, but it it is. Nothing similar to Google or to Office 365. It's, you know, if you're going to make this attempt, like make a good product. I wish they would invest. Yeah. Maybe they're just exposing the SES-like metrics for, for Workmail. I assume Workmail uses SES under the covers, so. It does, yeah. And finally, you can now launch encrypted EBS-backed EC2 instances from unencrypted AMIs in a single step. Finally. Awesome. Uh, yeah, I think, uh, I think Chromium gets it. Oh, okay. We were tied on dings, so tiebreaker goes to Chromium. Nice. Well, thank you very much. Uh, can we, can we talk a little bit here about this, um, this mention of the word AMI versus AMI? And so is this a new affliction of yours, Peter? AMI? Or I've said AMI for a long time. I also say AMI, but sometimes I say AMI. I mean, it's, I think it's the first time you've ever dropped it on this podcast. I don't, I don't know how I feel about it. And 
kind of it's disturbing in a way that you know I, I get that that's Amazon's official attempt that's Ami, but it does it, no one should call it Ami. Maybe like there's it has some, there's T-shirts on this yeah. that say it's AMI as a three-letter word. Like you you need to or three-syllable uh, acronym. You need to pick a side, Peter. Because I don't I don't know. <laughs> um, okay, you can, it, I get it. You can throw tomatoes at me now. <laughs> well, Peter just wants to launch his ebbs. Yeah, ebbs volumes. Yes, your, yeah. Encrypted ebbs. Yeah. Encrypted ebbs with my army in multiple regions. It's fantastic. <laughs> that X. I'm gonna get my. I'm gonna. Yeah, <laughs> get my X going. I'm gonna. We get my all my Oz platform. It's fantastic. Oh, I can't wait. Now I'm gonna look for the the best word that's made up out of a service, and I'm gonna drop it next week. Fantastic. <laughs> Well, fantastic, Peter. Thank you for uh, hosting Lightning Round as always. Uh, I still have a commanding lead by uh, two points, though, so I'm going to keep keep You almost had it today, too. You were definitely more active. Uh, Yeah, well, Jonathan's asleep on the wheel. He is asleep at the wheel, but he snuck one in. But don't, don't count on those, Jonathan. And that is The Week in Cloud. We'd like to thank our sponsors, Foghorn Consulting. Subscribe today on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and tweet us your feedback at hashtag the cloud You can now share encrypted AMIs across accounts to launch instances in a single step on project aws mm, i think it's a typo on project aws oh really what is it supposed to be i think it's just aws <laughs> okay i'll start over and it's not amis <laughs> yeah and you said amis like amis. i can't Ami? <laughs> you say ami um, no ami, AMI. it's three syllables ami yeah. no no <laughs> don't make me get Corey to come back on the show and have a talking to you okay <laughs>